science and society are inextricably linked. First, science affects society. We see that right now. It's extremely obvious with the vaccines, how vaccines were developed, how fast they were developed. They affect society right now in really profound ways. Where these vaccines end up, are they equitably distributed? Who gets these vaccines? How does power play into it? All these things. And conversely, society affects science. Basically, whatever the people in power feel is the priority, that is where the money goes. And in certain situations, they feel that it should go to science and that also fuels science progress. And it may be either for good, we get a lot of innovations, we get a lot of products, new technology, but it could also be for the other end of the spectrum, other people, it may harm other people and it may cause other people to be disadvantaged and so on. So these things, these concepts are just basically show that science and society are inextricably linked. The Ask Theory podcast shines the spotlight on Pinoy scientists from various scientific disciplines. Listen to some of the country's best scientific minds as they explain what they do in simple terms and share fascinating stories of how they got into science, the incredible things they've learned about the world around us, and so much more. Hi, Hilary. Welcome to the Ask Theory podcast. Hello. Hello. I'm so honored to be here. I've been following this podcast for a while and it's great that I get to be here finally. It's great that you had the time to be here because we've known each other even before we started this podcast. And I actually can't remember the last time we spoke. That was way before you left for the States, I think. Yes, I think it was during the National Science and Technology Week. I forget what year that was. Maybe that was 20. 19. Yeah, I think that was the last time we saw each other. Ah, so BC before COVID. <laughs> yeah, BC. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Um so yeah, it's been a while and I really want to know like what you've been up to because well, our listeners will get to know more about you during our conversation and why I really have been following your career as an up-and-coming scientist. But Let's give them the opportunity to get to know you a little better now, as if they haven't heard your name already. But I mean, for people who, and yeah, I'm just messing around, but seriously, can you tell us a bit about your journey as a scientist? And yeah, I, I really love this story. So can you share with us that story of how you fell in love with science? Yes, yes, of course. So right now, I am currently a junior at MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and I am majoring in physics. But my particular interest is in astrophysics and astronomy. But before that, I actually was born in Cebu. We, my family moved to Leyte. I grew up there. I finished elementary school and high school there. So I'm like homegrown Filipina. And then I came here to the U.S. for college. And my story with science actually began with my parents. My parents had a lot to do with it because <laughs> both of them were very extremely interested in science, especially my father. And at home, they would always tell me stories about scientists. So instead of fairy tales, they would tell me stories about Marie Curie and how she powered through the obstacles in science, even though she was a woman. And even then with the obstacles, she still ended up with two Nobel Prizes. And they told me about how Charles Darwin went to the Galapagos Islands and then 
came up with the theory of evolution and how Einstein's idea about gravity changed our view about time and space. And like those kinds of stories were like really grand to me and they were very inspiring. And my parents really wanted me to see those stories as like maybe these scientists were basically role models for me. And that's what they tried to do with these stories. And it worked. <laughs> and since then, I've been following that journey and hopefully I will keep continuing on. And then there's also another part of my, uh, my I guess, my origin story in becoming interested in astronomy. So, you know, when you look up, right, like the sun is like the size, like a tiny, tiny dot. You just can't see it because it's really bright. But if you look during a cloudy day, you can kind of see that it's small. But when I was five, I had this huge astronomy book that was as tall as I was. And when I opened it, the first thing I learned was that there could be a million Earths that would fit inside the sun. And to me, that was like extremely mind blowing. Like, oh my gosh, really? And then after that, that book told me that there are a hundred billion stars in the galaxy. And then the space between the earth and the sun is 93 million miles and stuff like that. And like, after learning that, after learning how huge the universe was, that was really how I started getting interested in the scale of the universe and like just learning about how the universe was. And since then, I really wanted to become an astronomer. Actually, before that, I wanted to be an astronaut. But then <laughs> I learned that to be an astronaut, you had to be an engineer. So I'm like, okay, I can't. I can't do that. <laughs> Let's just be an astronomer instead. So that's the path that I set for myself when I was younger. I am so lucky and privileged and happy that I get to follow my dream since I was a child. Yeah, I know about that story with the book. And I think... I think yeah. I wrote, yeah, that was that was the story you told me when I wrote a feature about you back in. Oh, really? 20, mm -hmm. Oh, Lord, I'm old. I don't remember. But that was like, I think 2018 <laughs> or, or mm -hmm. 2019. But yeah, that book that was as tall as you. Yes. <laughs> uh -huh. Life changing. Yeah, I wish I could say the same. But as a kid, I only just had the opportunity to borrow books from my cousins. So kind of like my journey towards loving science was also rooted in in these kinds of books, although I really mm -hmm. wish I could have had a book as tall as me. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, uh, you mentioned how your mind was open to the possibilities and the realities, actually, of the world and the universe through science, giving you a unique perspective on these things that we don't really think about every day. But if you were to encapsulate all of your experiences and all the things that you want to accomplish as a scientist in a single sentence, what would your mission statement be and why? To be honest, right now I'm going through so much growth in such a uh, little time. So I feel like I'm changing a lot as a person. So my mission statement has been changing a lot lately. <laughs> but at the moment, if I was really pressed to put it in one sentence, I would just say that my mission is to uncover and appreciate the wonders of the universe and to share it with the rest of the world. That's basically it. Yeah, that's a good mission statement like it not only like guides you in terms of what you do day to day because as you said you've been growing as a scientist and you've been undergoing all of these changes but also it sort of shapes what you will be doing eventually when you become a you know a professional scientist and start really contributing to the scientific field in a professional capacity 
But from what I've heard from you in our earlier conversations, you've been quite busy. I mean, I, I would imagine that someone studying at MIT would be busy, but can you tell us a bit more about your current projects, specifically the ones that are related to astrophysics and observational astronomy? Mm-hmm. Yes, I would love to say more about that. So I'll talk first about my astrophysics research project, which is I've been in this lab in the MIT Kavli Institute since my second semester, first year, and Since then, I've been able to do these projects in astronomy using computers. Actually, no, not astronomy, astrophysics using computers. So basically, I like to go from the like very basic concept and then build it up to what my project is like. So the big question that we're trying to answer here is how did galaxies form? That's the big, big question. So basically... We've figured out that galaxies, like our Milky Way, they grow by merging with or devouring other galaxies. And an example of this is the Milky Way and our neighbor Andromeda galaxy. Astrophysicists project that the Milky Way and Andromeda will be merging or will be on a collision course in some billions of years. Once they collide, they will grow into a much bigger galaxy. They will combine into a much bigger galaxy. And... While we have some knowledge about how the Milky Way merged with bigger galaxies, so galaxies at the scale of Andromeda, we don't know as much about how it devoured smaller galaxies. So it also eats up smaller galaxies. And it likely did that many dozens of times in the universe's history over the billions of years in the past. So this is currently a gap that we don't know much about. So to fill this gap, my research, we look at the Milky Way's outskirts, or we call that the stellar halo. And in these outskirts, we look for the remains of these small galaxies that the Milky Way has seen before. And we specifically look for the stars that these small galaxies carried into the Milky Way. And how do we do that? We use computer algorithms to search for the remains of these small galaxies. And in particular, we're looking at the tiniest, faintest, and oldest galaxies in the universe. And we call them ultra-faint dwarf galaxies. So by looking at how the remains of these ultra-faint dwarf galaxies move within the Milky Way, the algorithms then identify if these remnants indeed came from these small galaxies that existed in the past. And so from our study, we find that algorithms are generally not good (laughs) at finding these remnants of small galaxies. But if a remnant has high energy or high velocity, then the algorithms will be better. So our results basically mean that while algorithms are useful, we should be mindful of their limits. This is a useful finding because now that we have a lot of telescopes which are spewing out so much data, astronomical amounts of data, pun intended. So we're using computer algorithms more and more to deal with all the data that's coming in. So with our results, we hope that we will help the astronomy community effectively use these data to uncover the big question, which is, again, how the Milky Way formed. Uh I love how you explained that because it really, you know, even for someone without a scientific background, I can easily understand like the point of what your research is. Because in my job as a science journalist, I have to, of course, I can't just rely on press releases or Mm -hmm. what I read from other news outlets. So I have to read the study myself. And it's it's very easy to get lost in that complicated language. 
Yes. Especially when you're talking about things like the universe or space, which are quite simply not within the realm of the things that we pay attention to mm-hmm. every day. Mm-hmm. I mean, even myself too, like I get lost in all the <laughs> in all the technical <laughs> words and all these numbers as well. So it takes a while to get used to. Uh-huh, yeah. But those techniques that you use to help yourself or maybe help other people when you're explaining to them the things that you do. Because, you know, even the word astrophysics itself is kind of sounds intimidating to the average person because the word physics itself is a bit, you know, there, there's a lot of baggage that comes with that. People mm-hmm. think of the subject like, oh, it's so, it's so difficult. It's yeah. so complex. Mm-hmm. And then you add that element of space to it and you know how it quickly becomes complicated. But as a scientist and a science communicator, you, of course, recognize the importance of being able to communicate these concepts to the average person or to the non-technical, non-science background person. But there's a term that I really dislike and it's what they say, dumbing it down. Mm-hmm. I see a lot of people using that when like, oh, okay, dumb it down for me or try to dumb it down. I don't like to use that because of the connotations of the word dumb. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Yeah, but if I were to ask you for some tips, maybe your approach to simplifying science when you talk about what you do or when you talk about these high concepts, what are some of the things that you've found to be effective that maybe science communicators or science journalists who are listening to this podcast now can apply in their own work as well? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so in my experience with doing this, for me, I've basically come away with this big concept, which is that the things that make effective science communication are usually also the things that make a good relationship. So what makes a good relationship? Compassion, respect, common ground, communication, clarity, and things like that. So first of all, you have to have compassion. And this is one thing that you're always guilty of. People in science, usually people from the public, dislike scientists because they feel very condescending. They feel like, oh, I know so much more than you, therefore I'm better than you. But that's the mistake that we've made (laughs) as people who know who are professionally in science or who are training to be scientists. And so we need to break that barrier. And how do we do that? We need to build compassion. How do we execute that? We can execute that by recognizing, first of all, that communication is two-way. It's not just us. I'm sure you know this, right? That communication is just us providing information into the people who don't know anything. The people we're communicating to already know about the stuff we're talking about. They just know it in different ways or they've seen it in different ways. They have a different worldview, but they probably know what you're talking about. And equivalently, they also know stuff that you don't know about. So just having that idea first of all, is the foundation of good communication. Actually, (laughs) Neil deGrasse Tyson has been under fire, like not really under fire, like the science community is gradually like, they don't like how he communicates because he tends to be condescending and he called basically, yeah, just you can look at his tweets. <laughs> Other yeah. scientists take issue with that. So sadly, yeah. sadly that's tweets what And the tweets about his tweets. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then respect as well. So that ties into compassion a lot. And common ground, this is really where you, to communicate science, you need to first establish what your goals are, you as the communicator and the other person as the listener. And the listener could also be a communicator. Again, as I said, it's a two-way thing. And to start 
the communication process, you need to establish a common ground. So two things. What do you want to accomplish? What is the takeaway concept that we need to establish here? And then once you've established that, establish what concepts you both know. What foundational concepts do you know? So first, you could say that, oh, we both agree that the Earth revolves around the sun. Well, some people, <laughs> for, for other communication processes, this is not this is not agreed upon between both sides or like, the Earth is round. For some situations, that's common ground, but for others, it's not. So figure that out first. And then after you figure that out, gradually build up conceptually. Think of it like a staircase. Each one, only one logical step above the other. And even if it'll take like a long time to do it, that's basically how it becomes an effective thing. This is the pitfall of like communicating through TikToks and like short form, <laughs> short form uh -huh. media is like because you really have to pack a lot of information into a short time. But for me personally, the most effective communication is really one on one conversation because you get to share the excitement that you have, not just the information, but also the excitement and your attitude about the information that you're sharing. So, yeah. Basically, compassion, respect, common ground, excitement as well. I've learned that every time I speak about science, the first thing that people notice, and usually the only thing that people remember, is how excited I was. Not always the information, but my excitement about it. And to me, that's fine. Because if they see me excited about science, then that's going to get them excited about it as well. And then from then on, they'll start learning about it themselves. So... I think that's also a good thing to shoot for is to show excitement. Yeah, you made some really great points about how to like effectively communicate science. And and I found myself nodding while I was listening because I really could relate. I think the fact that you mentioned these are the things that make a relationship successful or make a relationship <laughs> work. And they're the same things that make, you know, science communication work mm -hmm. or they make science communication effective. Mm -hmm. And I like how that goes back to the core, which is basically that science and everyday life are inseparable. Like science is part and parcel of everyday life, even though we don't really like actively spend our waking hours thinking about, oh, ah, thank you, science, for this cup of coffee or thank you, science, for Zoom meetings or the sky or something like that. but. You know, bringing this discussion back down to earth, pun intended, <laughs> how would you say science and society are linked? How would you describe the connection between science and society? Are they really that connected? Yes. Actually, this is one of my new interests now, academic interests. Back then, I was only interested in science, but now I'm interested in the field that precisely studies this link. And the field is called science, technology, and society. I'm minoring in it now. Last semester, I wrote 12,000 words <laughs> for that subject. So I'm pretty interested in it now. But basically, science and society are inextricably linked. First, science affects society. We see that right now. It's extremely obvious with the vaccines, how vaccines were developed, how fast they were developed they affect society right now in really profound ways. Where these vaccines end up, are they equitably distributed? Who gets these vaccines? How does power play into it? All these things. And conversely, society affects science. So I remember I could cite one case study in which this was true. So first of all, back then in the Cold War, when Russia sent Sputnik into space, that was basically that sent 
alarm bells into the how do I say this in the psyche in the American psyche basically because uh-huh. there was like this showdown between the Soviet Union <laughs> the Soviet Union yeah. and the US and after that the US was extremely kind of they wanted to like show up to the Soviet Union. So what they did was they started funding science education a lot. They started hiring physicists to build the curricula. They started putting a lot more money into defense research. And MIT in particular had benefited a lot from this. MIT effectively became one of the centers of research during that time. So it goes both ways, right? How society is right now, the cultural milieu (laughs) that's basically how i would say it also affects how science moves basically whatever the people in power feel is the priority that is where the money goes and in certain situations they feel that it should go to science and that also fuels science progress and it may be either for good we get a lot of innovations we get a lot of products new technology but it could also be for the other end of the spectrum, other people, it may harm other people and it may cause other people to be disadvantaged and so on. So these things, these concepts are just basically show that science and society are inextricably linked. Uh-huh. And I hope you don't mind that I, I really have to ask you this because we're talking about the link between science and society. And this is something that I hear a lot whenever there's news about moon exploration or sending people to Mars or things like that. Inevitably, in the comment section, someone would chime in and say, you guys are so busy trying to find a new Earth or looking at other planets when there are so many problems here on Earth we should focus on instead. So what do you say to those people who question the merits of space science and use the problems on Earth as their frame of reference for why we shouldn't be prioritizing space yeah i see that question a lot actually (laughs) and fortunately the iau the international astronomical unions has a page dedicated to this about how astronomy how astronomy is used in everyday life so if you could basically just google iau astronomy in everyday life you could find all the applications of technologies derived from astronomy that we have in everyday life. So these include stuff in energy, industry, aerospace, medicine, even wireless LAN or internet. All these technologies that we take for granted today, most of us don't know that they came from astronomy, but this is just one of the examples of how astronomy by exploring things that don't seem to have like bearing on life on earth they actually end up creating these new technologies that will be used for other purposes while they were in first used for astronomy they can be i forget the exact term for these technologies but there's there's a word for them and these are the technologies that are made for one purpose but then they end up being useful in other purposes basically for consumer products for everyday life and so on i would recommend everyone to browse that so basically these things include communication satellites gps google maps solar panels mri all these things so these came out of seemingly useless science quote unquote (laughs) yeah yeah and 
You know, I just wanted to add because you put it really well, but I just wanted to add that I think the argument of why focus on space when there are so many problems here on Earth, like in a way, it kind of discredits the people who are working on the problems here on Earth. Yes. Like it operates on, I would say, like the fallacious assumption that when a certain sector or a certain group or organization devotes their resources to space, all of the resources go to space nothing else goes to yes. everything else. And mm-hmm. that's wrong because this isn't an all or nothing deal. Yes. Yes. You can't expect, you know, you can't expect people who specialize in certain areas of science to just drop everything they do and work on what you perceive is important. And that's also making the assumption that no one else is working on these problems when there are actually people who have devoted their lives to solving, say, the problem of endangered species, like environmental conservation or the problem of pollution. Like, it's not like these problems are being set aside or ignored in favor of sending someone to Mars. It's not an all or nothing deal. So I just feel like if we had a more open mind, maybe a broader way of looking at these innovations. And one way of doing that, of accomplishing that, is looking at how these technologies are applied in everyday life, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. But generally, to get that idea that just because we're trying to explore the stars doesn't mean we're forgetting about Earth. Exactly. Right. And then if I may add as well, actually, we already spend way too much money on the problems on Earth, particularly about (laughs) war. Right. (laughs) So, Uh yeah, the world governments like the US, China spend inordinate amounts of money on military when indeed if the governments just realized what things actually mattered, then we could have budget for both science and solving problems on earth it's just that we have our priorities not straight at the <laughs> moment i hope that that changes in a few generations hopefully yeah i kind of i kind of hope i see that in in our lifetimes yes. like would be nice to <laughs> it would be nice i think it would solve a lot of things especially in here in the philippines like if we only knew how to prioritize which things to spend on yeah i won't mention specific things but you know <laughs> you know if only we had Better prioritization, yeah. Mm -hmm. But related to that, we're really seeing how science and society are linked. Like the decisions that we make in everyday life, even something as seemingly non-science related as making policy decisions, uh, Mm -hmm. government decisions, they they still do have a connection to to science. Mm -hmm. But let's bring the discussion back to you as a science communicator and a scientist. I don't think I'd be overselling you if I said that you've accomplished Quite a bit. You've accomplished a lot, even as an early career science communicator and scientist. And I'm sure that a lot of other people your age, wow, that really makes me feel old. <laughs> a lot of people your age who are like into science probably feel some pressure to excel or to change the world as a scientist someday. And, you know, I'm sure that at some point you've probably felt that too, maybe in different ways. So, I guess my question is, do you actually feel any like pressure to be like the best scientist ever or the best science communicator ever? And how do you deal with those feelings, especially now that, you know, you're still in the process of growing as a scientist? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for saying that. <laughs> I've achieved quite a bit. That means a lot coming from you. But yeah, I do feel uh, pressure from myself. Well, some of it 
I think a lot of it actually is self-imposed and then the rest of it is from other people. Part of the pressure for me personally is that I have seen, as I told you earlier, right, from the stories that my family told me, I have seen the heights of human achievement and like I knew about those from a very young age and those inspired me and because I knew these upper limits of what a human being can achieve, I kind of want to aspire to that. And that makes me feel some self-imposed pressure. On the other hand, I feel pressure from other people because I feel like ever since I won the Breakthrough Junior Challenge, I guess the <laughs> listeners can look that up, but I won it four years ago. And ever since then, I have been basically sharing my journey in public and people have been following me on social media. And it's a very amazing platform to have, to have all these students message me saying that I inspire them. I feel so much honor and so much privilege to be that person for them. But also it makes me feel some pressure because at this point, I feel like I'm dreaming in public and dreaming in public is hard because if the dream doesn't pan out, then you don't only disappoint yourself, you also disappoint others. So I feel that way sometimes. And I honestly haven't figured that out, but I feel like the way I've been doing this is to just take it one step at a time and take it one day at a time. It's very hard. And I think another way I've been coping with this whole pressure thing is to look up to my mentors, basically the scientists that I'm working for, my professors in college. I also see them as like basically gods but when they share how they failed when they share their vulnerabilities when they share how they failed their classes back then how they failed to get a job basically sharing failures and those kind of make me feel better because you can still achieve a lot while being completely human and that is basically how i've been trying to think of it is that even though I am very deeply, viscerally aware of my failures, I'm still able to do what I want to do. And that's basically how I'm doing it right now. I'm sure that I will change my views in the future, hopefully when I grow. But for now, that is how I'm thinking about it. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, at least no one has asked you to cure COVID yet. I, <laughs> I, I, I remember this story that uh, the first homegrown Pinoy gravitational physicist, uh, yes. Reginald Christian Bernardo, mm-hmm. I wrote an article about him in 2020. You know, got to know him, got to talk about stuff. And he shared this funny story. I mean, of course, let me just preface by saying this was a joke, of course by one of his friends. So someone like commented, okay, congratulations, you, you're you a doctor now. Yes. Can, can you finally <laughs> like create the cure for COVID? And of yes. course, like it's funny because for so many reasons. But, yeah. you know, I think it captures that struggle like in a humorous way. It captures the struggle of mm-hmm. people in the sciences and the expectations that other people have mm-hmm. for yes. them or for, yes. for the things that they can accomplish someday. Yes. I mean, now that you bring that story up, I actually had a comment back then. Nang sabi na, oh boy. Uy, Hillary, sana masold mo yung problem ng traffic sa Maynila. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. Uh, oh, wow. I wish we could just apply. We could just make like videos for that and masolve natin yung mga ganyang <laughs> problema. But, but, you know, people who are smarter and older than us have attempted to solve these problems. And of course, these problems can't be solved by just one person. I could yes. probably go on all day about systemic injustices uh. and fixing them, blah, blah, blah. Yes. And we'd need another hour for this podcast. 
But since we don't have that, I guess I just want to ask you, and you did mention that, you know, you're not quite sure yet about, mm-hmm. you know, you're taking things one day at a time. But right now, do you have like any plans for like what you're going to do when you come back to the Philippines? And when are you coming back again? Oh, when am I coming back? That is a question that I do not know myself. <laughs> um, but I do have very clear goals of coming back. The question is when. That's one thing I don't know yet. But once I do come back, I really want to be involved in science education, science policy, hopefully something like that. And I would also like to build communities for aspiring scientists or also building support networks and infrastructures for scientists. But that's a very big goal. And that's something that I hope to do far down in my career. I don't know how that'll happen, but that's what I hope to do. Right. And yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to seeing... Yeah, not to put more pressure. We just spent like uh, uh, 10, 10 or so minutes talking about pressure. And here I am dumping pressure on you. But but in all honesty, I'm looking forward to seeing what you will be doing someday. So no pressure. Just, you know, just I've got my eye on you. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but kidding aside, if anyone wanted to talk to you about science, about science communication, or just follow you and your dreaming in public, what would be the best ways to reach out to you? Yes. So I am basically on all social media. <laughs> if you want to, uh-huh. for the listeners who want to check out my work, I have a website. It's hilaryandales.com. And on the website, I have linked all of my social media. So Facebook is just my name. My YouTube channel is my name. I'm also on Twitter, on Instagram, at Cosmic Hillary's. And you can find that on my website directly. And I would love to talk to any of y'all about science and science and society, anything like that. We can all learn from each other. Yeah. And as an aspiring scientist yourself who has seen things and has done things and is basically on this lovely journey of growth, what words of wisdom can you share with other aspiring scientists out there, especially those who want to work in the Philippines someday? Mm-hmm. So for those who aspire to be scientists, I mean, I'm an aspiring scientist myself. So I guess this is advice for all of us. And my first thing <laughs> I would like to say is to believe in yourself. This sounds very cliche. I hate to say it, but it does work. I have seen in the four years since people have been following me, I've been getting messages from these students who sadly don't believe in themselves. They say that, oh, I'm not good enough for science or I'm not smart enough. But that's not true because these things can all be learned and these are not fixed rates. You're not born like that. You are able to grow and develop yourself. So that goes into my second piece of advice, which is to practice a growth mindset. And that's a key word I would recommend putting into Google, growth mindset versus fixed mindset. So I would recommend practicing the former. And I recommend reading up on all of that. And then next is to build a community. Find mentors who will support your journey. So this is parents, teachers, professors, or the scientists you met at an event. Maybe they'll be open to mentoring you. Not necessarily mentoring one-on-one, but maybe just asking them for advice. Those people could be mentors. And then peers, so classmates, friends from the internet, friends from Twitter, friends from Facebook, 
I have made so many science friends through Twitter and it has been a great experience. So if you want to find peers in science, I would suggest looking up hashtags like International Day of Women and Girls in Science or Women in Science or I am a scientist. Those hashtags, I would highly recommend to anyone. If you go, if you just scroll through those hashtags, you could see what these people look like, what these science students and science professors look like. And it's a very good way of humanizing the scientific community. And I would highly recommend everyone do that. All right. After all of that, I want to thank you because, you know, normally I thank the scientists I talk to. But in your case, it's really special because we have to match our time zones just to make this possible. (laughs) So... (laughs) And I know like in your busy schedule that, you know, you had to find time to do this. So I really appreciate it. I really appreciate that you joined us here on the show to talk about yourself and the stuff that you do. I'm really sure that, you know, the people you've already inspired are happy to hear from you. And the people who may have just heard your story for the first time will doubtlessly be inspired by your journey. And like I said, I look forward to everything you'll be working on in the future. And I really hope that we can keep in touch. Of course, of course. And thank you so much for having me on the podcast. My first time on a podcast. I'm so honored. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but <laughs> yes, thank you so much to the listeners. And thank you for inviting me. Right. So yeah, take care, stay safe. And yeah, we'll talk again. Stay safe. Salamat. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Ask Theory. Follow Flip Science on Facebook, at Flip Science PH on Twitter, and at Flip Facts on Instagram. And check out our official Shopee store if you want to get copies of our books, Historiang Scientifico and Science Scramble. Stay curious!